Well, we've previously mentioned that this study of God will at times be provocative and counterintuitive. Today is one of those times. So some of you will sit here and find yourself saying during the sermon, no, 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 that can't be true. That doesn't seem right. I mean more than you usually are saying that. (laughs) More than usual. I can't be true. That doesn't seem right. I don't believe that. But the Bible says this. The Bible says this. What about this? That's going to happen today. So three brief words of advice (laughs) when coming across something new, as this is bound to be for some of us. The first piece of advice is, remember Chesterton's fence. G.K. Chesterton. Here's the illustration from Chesterton's own words. He says, there exists, in a cert- there exists a certain institution or law. Let us say, for the sake of simplicity, a fence or a gate erected across the road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see any use of this. Let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then, when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to clear it away. That's how we should be about what we hear today. We're quick to say, I don't see the use of that, let's get rid of it. You may not like what the church has said about the unity of God, but don't react and tear it down until you've gone away, thought long and hard, understand what work it is doing. Right? In other words, you're able to ask and answer, why is the fence there? Remember Chesterton's fence. The second piece of advice is this. If your God never shocks you, Right? Never says or does or is in his being anything counterintuitive or scandalous or offensive or elusive or intellectually perplexing. If he never hurts your head, then you're probably worshiping a figment of your own imagination and not the biblical God. Everybody intends, of course, to be worshiping the biblical God. But that won't do, right? Mormons intend that. Heretics intend that. Everybody intends this. The God whose opinions are identical with your own is surely an idol. So we would do well to remember that, as as John Owen put it, that all of our notions of God are childish in respect to his infinite perfections. Owen says, we lisp, we babble, we see but his back parts, we know but little of him. The third piece of advice before we start is, I can assure you that what we're going to see today, new as it will be to some, is in fact the dominant mainstream Christian view of God. Right? Protestant, Catholic, North, South, East, West, 1st century, 14th century, all down through the centuries. 
So in other words, what I will try to defend and to unpack just a little bit today is, is what is known as classical Christian theism. That's it. It's the classical historical view of the church on the unity or the oneness of God, which it turns out is surprising to most. So with that, we'll make the three points that are there in your outline in the bulletin. The one God, the God who is one, and loving the Lord your God. First, the one God. Now, this is the easy part. We'll be using as our basic text the famous Shema of Israel from Deuteronomy 6, which we heard read. Especially verse 4, which says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, when we speak of God being one, I want us to think of two senses in which we can take the word one. First, it could mean numerical oneness. That is, that there's only one God. And that's our first point here. But alternatively, the word could be focused on the nature of God's unity, on his undivided essence. What kind of unity is God? And that will be the second point. But for now, the simpler matter, the one God. The Shema is an affirmation of monotheism. But even here, like even here, there is more than meets the eye. When we affirm the numerically one God of the Bible, implied in that is his incomparable uniqueness, his singularity, which we've looked at a bit already in this series. Right, so we're not affirming here one relatively uninteresting being for whom there might potentially be rivals. This is a oneness which is unique and singular. There cannot possibly be another God than the one God. The Christian tradition has always held, and you can get treatises on this, that given the nature of our God, it, there is, it is not possible for there to be a second one. He alone is the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, I am he. There is no God beside me. Or Isaiah 44. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So we're talking here about a comprehensive, universal, unrivaled unity or oneness of God. Zechariah 14 says this, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, meaning acknowledged as the only God, and his name will be one. So the New Testament, Right. The New Testament unveils with more clarity the triune being of God, the threeness of God, but it does so without in any way abandoning this monotheism. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8, against the notion of many, many so-called gods and lords, Paul says, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So far, so good, I hope. 
There is one God. One unrivaled God. He alone is the Lord. Our second point is the God who is one. There is one God and he is one. Right? Notice those are two different assertions. There is one God and the one God is one. The Lord your God is one. That's a being statement. The verb is, right, is, is a metaphysical word. It's an ontological word. It's about the being of God. He is one. Even the demons, James tells us, know this. They tremble and believe that God is one. This is logically different than saying the demons tremble and say, oh, there's only one God. That's not what the demons are trembling about. They're trembling about the nature of God, that there is, that God is one. So here we are talking about the nature of God's unity, what is known as divine simplicity. Which, as you are about to find out, is not very simple. But I want to start with some basic truths about God's unity or his essence. These are important because it turns out we don't grasp them. And to fail to grasp them or to know them is to be cognitively deeply confused while you're worshiping God. So some basic truths. God has one will. There are not three wills in the Holy Trinity. There is one will. The essence of God has one power, one glory, one justice, one goodness, one intellect. There are not three minds in the Holy Trinity. There is one. God has one knowledge. The three persons of the Trinity all share the same divine nature. Now, even here, we're beyond analogies of our experience, which we should expect at some point if God is not a figment of our own imagination. Nobody could make this God up, by the way. Nobody. We are not asserting here that the Father and the Son and the Spirit share the divine nature the way three people share human nature. But I could pick three of you out and have you come up here and say, person A is an instance of humanity, and person B is another instance of humanity, and person C is another instance of humanity. They all share the same divine nature. But they're three distinct persons. The the divine nature that they're sharing there is some abstract set of ideas or principles. That's not how God shares. That's not how the three persons of the Trinity share the divine nature. That would be three distinct gods. That would make you an idolater and a polytheist. When we say that the three persons of the Godhead share the same exact nature, it's it's like saying three people who have the same soul. Literally an identical soul inhabiting three bodies. It would be something like that. Which, of course, there's no analogy for in the created order. Again, I leave aside here the, you know, the eggs and the H2O and the, all the stuff that people say here. That's, it's all wrong. Right? Remember this. There's no analogy for God in the created order. Period. Someone wants to give you one with a clover leaf or something like that. You just, you just lovingly call them a heretic. And walk away. <laughs> but I had a professor who said... Um, the three persons sharing the same nature would be something like three balloons all sharing the exact same air molecules. Something like that. So all of a sudden we now realize, oh, when we talk about the unity of God, we're talking about something that has no analogy in the created order. Like we're not used to this. The nature, the essence of the Father and the Son 
and the spirit is the identical, numerically identical essence. There is one divine nature and thus one set of divine attributes such as will and knowledge. Again, there are not three wills in the Holy Trinity. This is the, this is the diagnostic test, right? If you're, if you're working with someone, you just ask them, how many wills are there in God? They're going to say three. The Father has his will, the Son has his will. By the way, let me just state this. That position, which we all kind of naturally hold, so I'm sympathetic, I'm try- I really want to be charitable, but that position is not an error. It's just, a non- it's just outside the bounds of Christianity. Right? So, despite the idolatrous way in which we often talk, the unity between the Father and the Son is not a mere moral unity. It's not an agreement of wills, as if they decided to work together on a joint project. Again, there's one will, not three. Otherwise, you have tritheism. But why do we talk this way? Why is it so easy for us to do this? Because we project human notions of personhood back into the unity of God. And that's that cognitive idolatry that I speak about. So we're working here with a very strong notion of unity, not a mere social contract between the persons of the Godhead. And this has been traditionally expressed by affirming that God is simple. Simple. And by simple, we mean God is not composed of parts. Now, of course, we all know he doesn't have physical body parts, But the assertion does not simply mean that God doesn't have body parts. The assertion is that God doesn't have any immaterial parts. He has no metaphysical parts. Like you have parts that are invisible, like actuality and potential, like existence and essence, all these kinds of things. We could say a human being's made up of these things. Angels are made up of these things, but God isn't. He has no parts whatsoever, visible or invisible. Here's Augustine, 4th century. The nature of God is simple and immutable and undisturbed. Here's the Westminster Confession. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, comma, parts, comma, or passions. Without body, comma, without parts, and without passions. Here's the Belgic confession used by the Dutch Reformed. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. So, simple here is being used the way you might use it in chemistry. Right? What we're saying is God is not in any way a compound. It's very important to get that. God is not in any way a compound. Not even a being in existence or some metaphysical compound. There are no things which, when mixed or appropriately stitched together, yield God. Nothing is prior to God, either in time or even conceptually prior to God. So, I know this hurts your head. I've gotten that a few times in this series. I guess here's my answer to that, by the way. You know what else hurts your head? Cell biology. Like everything worthwhile on the planet hurts your head. Metaphysics hurts your head. College hurts your head. Math hurts your head. Right? Right? right. Trying, to, trying to change a tire on your ta- car hurts my head. 
anything worthwhile hurts your head. I mean, if you have a God who never hurts your head, then you, you, could just, you can just discard that such a being. Sorry, that's just an aside on having your head hurt by the preacher. Um, so by now, I think we can see what this idea is trying to protect. What is the reason for Chesterton's fence in this case? Simplicity is protecting the ultimacy, the unity, the perfection, the coherence, the harmony, the absoluteness, and the indivisibility of God. Without it, you will compromise those things. Nothing is in back of God. Nothing is prior to God. So, here's where the fun starts. What does this mean for the attributes of God? Traditionally, the church has said, I I hope you're ready for this. I would ask if you're seated. But traditionally, the church has said that God doesn't have attributes. I know you've got a little, I know you've got A.W. Pink's book on the attributes of God, and you've got other books on the attributes of God. But attributes are things that we attribute to God. Attributes, as we creatures instinctively speak of them, are properties or qualities or features. If you somehow mix up goodness and love and light and righteousness and integrate them together just right, you would have God. You have attributes, but God doesn't have any parts. He's not a bundle of properties like a human being is. God is not a bundle of properties like He's one indivisible, simple, uncompounded being. Goodness and love and light are not distinct in God. God is love. God is good. God is light. God is powerful. In fact, God is all love. He is all good. He is all powerful. Strictly speaking, then, God does not have his attributes. He is his attributes. Thus, all that we say about God is God. Here's Augustine again. He's always saying something like this. He says, what God is, he has. What God is and has are not two things. He's always saying, now Augustine's not innovating, but he just represents the tradition. He's always saying things like God's goodness is God. God's wisdom is God. Again, now that's strange and counterintuitive to us. But that's largely our fault because we're cut off from the tradition. We have a kind of ahistorical Christianity, which is why we're subject to innovation and novelty. Part of the purpose of this series is to retrieve the riches back. It may be strange and counterintuitive. Some of you may have never heard this before. And again, you may be sitting there thinking, no, 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 that's not possible. My Bible says otherwise. We'll get to that in a minute. But think about it. Please think with me just what it would mean if this were not true. You would have the property of goodness, let's say. Goodness is a property, which is apparently not God. So it's something other than God. So it's like a created thing, which exists independent of God. And it's goodness and all other properties like love, which are also not equivalent to God. You'd have all these properties and somehow these things which are not God, 
would be pieces or qualities of God. No matter how you do this, you're going to end up with a being who is not the one simple God of the Bible or of the confession of the Christian church. Which is why David Bentley Hart, well-known Eastern Orthodox theologian, in a recent book on God said, a denial of divine simplicity is tantamount to atheism. You end up with no God if you deny this at all. By the way, he's an Eastern Orthodox theologian, right? The Eastern half of the church has taught this from the beginning. If you grew up Eastern Orthodox, you know this. You end up with a so-called God made up of parts that are not God. Sometimes, beloved, sometimes our instincts are wrong. And they are probably wrong about God's attributes. Another way to put this is to say that whatever we say about God, whatever we say about God, applies to all of God, to the totality of who he is. Here's Irenaeus, the great 2nd century church father. So I'll show you how far back this goes. Right, Irenaeus is from the 2nd century. He knew the martyr Polycarp who knew John. That's where we are here. This is Irenaeus. He says, God is a simple, uncompounded being without diverse members, altogether like and equal to himself. In other words, every part of God is equal to every other part of God because God is equal to himself at every point. All of God is God. Since he is, Irenaeus continues, holy... Now here, that's not H-O-L-Y, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely. Since God is holy understanding and holy spirit and holy thought and holy intelligence and holy reason and holy sight and holy light and the whole source of all that is good. Right, there you go. Second century bishop in what is Gaul. We don't know this, do we? By the way, this is why God can be holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, present at every point. Because he's indivisible. He isn't spread out like a gas in the room here, where part of him's here and part of him's over there. All of God is at every single point in the cosmos. Right? right? Even the uh, subatomic you know, level. There's no level you can get to where you can say, well, only a little part of God can fit in there. He's going to have to leave love and goodness behind and bring only justice into this part. All of God is everywhere. He's indivisible. He's not a gas. He doesn't show up to help you in parts. You know, some attributes here and others over there. So what he is, he is holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y. What he is, he is holy. He's not 97% love and 3% justice. He's 100% just, 100% loving, 100% of everything he is. There's no development, potential, flux, or change in God. He's a fully actualized, fully realized being. And that means he has no parts. And that means we need some fundamental cognitive overhauling to be done in how we are to think about him. And that's going to hurt your head a little. So let me stop and briefly help with what might be the obvious objection to all this. Namely, then why does the Bible speak of God as if he does have parts or properties or attributes just like humans have attributes? 
It's a good question, it's, and it's, it's a question that's lying on the face of this sort of a sermon. The short reply is as follows. The Bible speaks of God in a lot of ways that we know are accommodations or stooping down to our weakness and are not strictly speaking true of God in himself. Right? Think of it. It speaks of God having eyes. So if I preach the sermon up here and says, God has no physical eyes... <laughs> I would assume that 20 of you would not assault me at the door saying, but my Bible says the Lord has eyes. You, you make, you're doing this all the time. You realize, well, no, that's an accommodation of some sort. He doesn't actually have eyes. He doesn't have arms, but the Bible says he has an arm. He doesn't have hands or wings or nostrils. The Bible says he has nostrils, that he has feet. The Bible speaks of him standing and sitting. It speaks of him learning. It speaks of him not knowing certain things. It speaks of God being surprised or exasperated. It speaks of God furiously overflowing in anger. It speaks of God suffering grief or changing his mind. We're not talking about changing his mind about minor things, like things like making mankind. Like we all know upon reflection, right, that these expressions are how the simple, unchanging God appears to us. When we behave a certain way, it, we, we sense the, we, that comes across to us as anger. But it would be absurd to assume that all of this language should be taken literally of God in himself, and I suggest both of you don't do that. If you did, you'd be in some weirdo cult. Not to mention, there are plenty of texts which speak of God's infinite, unchangeable, eternal, spiritual perfections. So it really isn't odd It is not odd that the simple God is spoken of as having a variety of distinct attributes. There's nothing odd about it. And as an aside, let me just state, you cannot just simply naively trust a simple face value reading of the Bible. You have to read the Bible in the community of the church. Because sure, a simple face value reading of the Bible would say God has arms and eyes and parts and attributes, all kinds of things. And that brings me to a second thing, which I hope can help here, a couple of illustrations. If God is undivided light, which he is, simple and uncomposed, which he is, then we can think of his relations to creatures, to us, as that light being diffused through a prism. So what appears diverse to us is in some mysterious and beautiful way, united and utterly one in his essence. Right? That's how the attributes of God are. They appear diverse to us, but they are united in one in the being of God. Or one can think, and I got this illustration from Matthew Barrett, one can think of sitting in different seats at a baseball game. Right? You, move, you change your seat every inning, right? So the game is the exact same game. Nothing is changed in the game. It's an unchanged game, but it looks different to us depending on where we sit. Now, I'm going to give this to you in a little more uh, theological key by quoting Herman Bavink, the great Dutch Reformed theologian. Bavink says this, Just as a child cannot picture the worth of a coin of great value, but only gains some sense of it when it is counted out in a number of smaller coins, so we too cannot possibly form a picture of the infinite fullness of God's essence unless it is displayed to us now in one relationship, then in another. Now from one angle, then from another. Right? That's what's going on when the Bible attributes 
things or properties to God. That's what's happening. Okay, that's simplicity. Our third point. Love the Lord your God. What does this mean and why does it matter? It turns out that the Christian life depends on the deep, deep, mysterious unity of God. For one thing, it's out of that unity that the Son comes and the Son displays in His earthly life simplicity of devotion to the uttermost. And the sending of the Spirit, right, who produces in us what? The fruit, singular, of the Spirit. In other words, the ethical attributes or properties of the Christian life are profoundly interconnected. At bottom, they are one because they flow from this God. All the fruits of the Spirit are deeply united, as are all the Beatitudes. You cannot have one Christian virtue. Without the other. They interpenetrate one another. And this is because this is a faint creaturely image of our simple, coherent, unified God. Right? God is not pieces and our ethical, emotional, intellectual, devotional life of obedience to him should not be scattered in pieces either. So for example, if we were to look at the fruit of the spirit, again, the fruit singular of the spirit. Our love is to be peaceful, joyful, patient, kind, and gentle, right? Our joy is to be loving, peaceful, gentle, faithful, and so on. We can do this with all the fruits of the Spirit, right? The the goal of the Christian life is that those things become interpenetrated in one in us, and then we become creaturely reflections of the deep, coherent unity that God himself is in his being and in the grandeur of his moral life. Why is this so? Well, because all the various fruits of the Spirit trace themselves back to the singular presence of the Spirit. The simple God breathed into your soul. Right? When God breathes into your soul, or when God pours grace into your soul, He doesn't give you a part of Himself. Now, we, do, we think of this, right? We think, well, God, I need some patience, so like, He squirts a little patience into your soul. Or He does, you know, he, he, I need a little kindness, so He gives you a little, you know, He fills your kindness by... God gives you himself. And when he gives you himself, he gives you the totality of his being in its simple purity and unity. And that forms and fashions our ethical life, right? We can't walk around, and all of you know that, we can't walk around thinking, well, um, you know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm, I'm very kind, but at the same time, I lack, completely lack gentleness. I think everybody would realize, well, there's something, something's not quite right there, right? You're, you're probably not really particularly kind if you lack gentleness, You're not probably particularly gentle if you lack patience. We all recognize finally that this is a call to completely reflect the image of God in Jesus Christ. So, the Christian ethical life is rooted in the simplicity of God. Finally, one more way to show this. Remember the Shema, our main text? It connects the nature of God's unity with our response in an immediate... And by the way, it's a, it's, everybody knows this text, right, in Deuteronomy 6. But it's a, it's a startling connection. Here's the text. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay. Okay, God is unified in his being. Now what? Here's the next words. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might, and with all of your strength. Your love 
reflected back should have the same integral coherence and oneness that God himself is. You see the connection. The Lord is one. Love him with one singular, undivided totality of devotion yourself. I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard this, but high theology is highly practical. Now, we saw in the gospel that Jesus, right? In Jesus, you can see this simplicity of integrated unity of being. It's on display in his life, right? Jesus is the fully integrated human being. He's not scattered. He's not fragmented. It's on display in his human flesh. Right? Jesus calls the Shema. And I don't know if you noticed this in the gospel lesson. But he's asked what the greatest commandment is. And he includes the part that God is one as part of the greatest commandment. The scribes come up to him and ask him, which, is the, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus does not go right to love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor. He's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the unity of God is the basis on which the two great commandments hang. It's quite startling that Jesus quotes that part. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. There is an analogy between God's being and our response in love. God is simple, integrated, harmonious, undivided, wholly united and one. He is this by nature. And we are to offer by grace, simple, pure, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly united, undivided hearts, total love in response. So that the unity and the integrity of God calls forth a creaturely imitation whereby we love God with the full unity and integrity of our being. The Shema, the Lord your God is one, means your being is to be united in love of this God. Simplicity and purity in God is to evoke simplicity and purity of devotion in us. Undivided, unmixed devotion. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Therefore, be one, united in your devotion to him. Amen. Amen.